following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to the book of First Timothy chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, and we have been in this uh, study for a little bit here, just for a few weeks, and uh, it's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to his dear son in the faith, Timothy. Um, it's, a, it's a letter that I, I love because I, I value these kind of relationships. When I, when I read these words, I think to myself often, uh, every Paul needs a Timothy and every Timothy needs a Paul. And it is, it is a beautiful expression of Paul's love for young Timothy. And what this letter is basically about is what life in the church it's supposed to look like. So when you <clears throat> come to a church service on a Sunday morning, and what is it that you should experience? And we've seen early on in this book that, that Paul has made it clear that the church is to be a place that teaches sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, 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 that namely that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of which we are the foremost, Right? Uh, and we, we, the church is to teach the sound doctrine. We're also to be refuting false doctrine that is not in alignment with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And last week we jumped into chapter 2, and I hope you noticed this. We saw two priorities that should happen when you come to church on a Sunday. You should hear kingdom-minded prayers, people praying for one another, thinking of the advancement of the gospel, praying for people in their church, thinking of things that go on around the world. And you should also hear gospel-centered preaching, the proclamation of God's word. Those two things should be happening each and every Sunday. I, I said this in the first service. When you come to church, it should be like going to an In-N-Out burger, right? They do it well, two things well. They make a burger and they make a milkshake. Their fries are not so good. Even though I did hear this morning between services, if you ask them for well-done fries, they're better. All right? So I, I did hear that. I'd go to Five Guys for fries, go to In-N-Out for your burger and your milkshake. They do two things well. The church should be like In-N-Out. They should do two things well. Pray and proclaim. Those things should be done when you get to church on a Sunday. Those priorities should indicate something to you. Because we should proclaim and pray this type, this way, because when the gospel is preached, when it's believed, when it's submitted to, it transforms people, nations, and cultures. That's what God does. It's God's work. That's how He does it. And so we, we just gotta keep those two priorities in front of us. Now, as we turn this morning to 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15, you're gonna notice these are charged challenging verses. These are, these are hard verses. And we're going to start a discussion about order in the church. And we're going to start a discussion about leadership in the church. So with that in mind, let's stand together. Let's read first Timothy two, eight through 15. I'm going to let these verses land on you like they would land on me on a Tuesday morning when I first open my Bible to go, all right, what am I in this week? This will be your moment. Here's what Paul says from the reading of God's word. Paul wrote these words, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel <clears throat> with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but, what is, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You can see why you need to pray for your pastor this morning, right? <laughs> so let's pray. Father, we are, we are grateful that you've given us hard things to understand because they, they make us lean into you more. They make us more dependent on you. And they also reveal to us how different life is in the church than what life is in the rest of the world. And so I pray this morning that you would help us open our eyes, 
Help us to see the truth that's found here. And Lord, I, I pray more than anything that everybody would walk out of here feeling honored and cherished and valued by you and useful in your kingdom for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. All right, so that was your, your wake-up call, right? It's your wake-up call. So these are some of the most controversial words in the Bible. But it's passages like these that we must do something. We must not allow our emotions, our presuppositions, and the cultural norms to be our guide. Right? We just, we just can't do that. We must let God's word guide us because God's word is the only trust, trustworthy, authoritative, objective source. It's the only one. Culture is shifting. Your emotions are changing. Um, you probably got mad when I read the text and by the end of the time, you're going to be happy, right? You cannot gauge this text on your emotions. You have to gauge this text on what does God say? And because the gender, the role of the issue of gender roles is such a difficult and a hot topic in our world today, we're going to take two weeks to talk about this. And the, the titles of the sermon are absolutely profound. Gender roles in the church part one and gender roles in the church part two. Okay. It, it is, I mean, it is absolutely profound. I think you, you know, you, that's how simplistic your pastor thinks, right? All right. So for today, we're going to just do a few things. We're going to define gender roles in the church. We're going to look at why. Why did God say this? And we're going to talk about some considerations that we really need to think in uh, and, and deal with on this particular topic. Now, over the next two weeks, here's what I hope to learn, that you'll hope you'll learn from this. This is going to come up on the screen. It's not in your notes. This is the big idea for the next two weeks. And it'll stay on the screen for quite a while here. God has given each of us our genders and has given each gender a role in the church. Each gender has equal value, yet a different role. When we submit to God's design, every person is honored and useful in God's work. And I want to say that again. God has given each of us our genders and has given each gender a role in his church. Each gender has equal value, yet a different role. When we submit to God's design... Every person is honored and useful in God's work. Now, let me say this at the outset of this text. This text has been improperly and oppressively used to deny women legitimate ministries in the church. It has been used to stifle women, to shut people, to shut women up, and to treat them with dishonor. So we, we must handle this text with the delicate care with which I believe the Apostle Paul wrote it. I don't believe Paul wrote this as a male chauvinist. I don't believe Paul wrote this as an overreaction to try to squash women. I don't think that at all. I think Paul wrote this in response to something happening in Ephesus, but he wrote it with delicate care, with, delicate care, with grace, and with the mercy that I think we should receive this. So we must handle the text with the way that Paul wrote the text. Because each gender is to play an essential part in the life of God's church. And every person, male and female, is valued by God. Is valued by God, even though we might have different roles or functions within the church. And one thing you have to keep in mind here, we're going to talk about this at the end, is you're going to hear me say this a lot. Equal in value, different in role. I'll say that a lot throughout this time because our culture equates value with role. So an example is if you're you're the vice president of the company, you're more valuable than if you're working on the floor of the company. See, that's not how God views it. God says everyone is made in the image of God. Therefore, they all have equal value even though they have different roles. So we must understand that and get that very clear. Now, the reason Paul wrote to Timothy about this is because of the cultural instability and gender confusion that was going on in the town of Ephesus. It's important to understand that in Ephesus, if you were to, I mean, uh, the best way to describe this for me would be if imagine a giant temple sitting on top of Mount Nebo that overlooked the city of Roseburg. 
right? Pillars that were 67 feet high and a building as, as wide as about three football fields overlooking the entire city. That temple dominated the city's culture. Diana was celebrated in Ephesus as the goddess of fertility. And there were temple prostitutes and temple prophets and prophetesses that roamed the streets. Ephesus was a party town. Eunuch priests were under the authority and influence of the false goddess. They led worship at the temple. One commentator said that Ephesus, here was the quote, was a, was a bastion of feminine supremacy. It was a town that had a mix of Jews and Greeks in it who did not get along very well. And the city was ready to protect this temple at all costs. Just for your own notes sometime, right in the, the chapter of Acts chapter 19, go back and read that chapter. It's a moment when Paul brings the gospel to Ephesus. People begin to respond to the gospel and they stop buying those little silver idols that were sold at the temple. And the businessmen were losing profit. And they go chasing Paul And they're the ones that created the conflict, not Paul, right? So when they share the gospel, these people respond to the gospel. They trusted Jesus. They stopped buying stuff at the temple. And the entire town turned out to riot because you don't mess with the temple of Diana. And so this brief flyover the town shows you something about this town. There's gender confusion. There's sexual confusion and perversion. And there's a strained, unstable town. And in the middle of that town, there's a church, a small church. And you can imagine wonderfully the types of people who were coming to faith in Jesus and started coming to this town, this little church. There were probably prostitutes who had been selling themselves at the temple that received Christ and started coming to church. How awesome would that be? There were eunuch priests coming to Christ walking in the door that did not look like men. They looked like women. They were feminine in nature. Coming to Christ, walking in the door of the church. There were wealthy men who had benefited from their business at the temple or benefited from the entertainment at the temple, coming to Christ, walking in the doors of this church. There were Jews and Greeks who hated one another coming into this church because they'd come under the banner of Jesus And now Paul writes a letter to this pastor to say, all right, let's talk about how to pastor these people. And when you know the backdrop of that, it gives some context of why Paul would write these words. But let me just ask you to imagine and think, it doesn't take you hard to see how vital this is to the culture and the world that we live in. There's gender confusion happening everywhere in our world. Just talk to your kids about it sometime and ask the dialogues that they have going on with their friends and find out how confused our teenagers and our college-age students are about how to navigate through this world when God didn't give me my gender. I chose my gender. There's gender confusion happening everywhere from homosexual marriage to the gender identity crisis that has brought on transgenderism to sexual immorality of every kind in our world. Our culture is struggling with these issues everywhere. This is incredibly valuable for us to learn in the church. And quite frankly, the church has not helped. Quite frankly, the church's lack of clarity, and let me add as well, not just clarity, but lack of compassion with clarity about these issues has not been helpful. We have criticized others on Facebook. We have held signs up on the street corner to condemn people and tell them about all their sins without ever first looking to our own sins as well. We've refused to be clear, and if we are clear, we very most time lack compassion and understanding and patience. In some cases, the church has blatantly disobeyed God on these particular subjects, and in other cases, the church has compromised herself on these very issues. So here's the way you should think about this. If, if the world is a bastion of, of gender confusion, the church should be a bastion for God's created order. And we should have answers with compassion about the gender issues of the day. Not answers with criticism. Not answers with condemnation. But answers with compassion. 
So knowing the gender confusion in Ephesus and in our world, let's turn our attention to what Paul says. Let's look at the first point in your notes, which is a universal answer to a cultural problem. And there are several things in this text that we could spend a lot of time on, but I do want you to notice one thing as you get a brief fly over the text is if gender roles were not important to God, God would have stayed silent. But that's not what he did. I want everybody to understand this. Our world would tell you gender doesn't matter. We don't have to worry about gender. If we'd stop talking about men and women and just be together, we would never have these issues. That's not what God does. God speaks to the issue, which tells us something. God gave instruction about each gender regarding life in the church, life in the family. And in doing so, he shows us that gender matters to God, gender roles matter to God. And the reason they matter to God is because God believes, which tells us clearly, to live in the fulfillment of our lives, we should live in our God-given roles and our God-given genders. In other words, God is so good to you, God is so kind to you, That the creator of you would give you the gender he gave you, give you the role with the gender he gave you, and in doing so, you functioning in that by the power of the Spirit of God, you would find great satisfaction, great joy, great fulfillment in your life. What that means is you may be here or listening and you're struggling with you don't like your gender very well. And I would just say to you with joy that there is a Savior who cares for you who loves you, who made you, and wants to empower you to live in the God-given gender he gave you. And you can find joy and happiness and satisfaction in that gender. That's how much God cares. God would write about it. God would declare something about it. See, now when you know that Paul is dealing with particular issues in Ephesus, it helps you look at the text. You begin to see why Paul wrote this particular text. Because it doesn't take long to just read the text and go, okay, wait a minute. Um, There's only one verse for dudes, and there's five verses for dudettes. I mean, we got an issue. I mean, is this out of, this is out of balance here. I mean, and for what some have said is, Paul is just a male chauvinist telling women, know your place. We've already covered that. That's not Paul's attitude in this. Rather, knowing the background of Ephesus, knowing the culture they were dealing with, we cannot forget the influence of this temple and why Paul would write these things. For, for instance, there were a lot of temple worship practices going on in that temple. Well, imagine people coming to Christ, don't know any better. They've been at the temple worshiping all week long. They come to Christ on a Friday. How do you think they think another worship center is going to celebrate? The same way they did it at the temple. So they're going to come into the church, their little small house gathering, and they're going to think that they do the same things in the church that they did at the temple. Paul's got to give some clarity for that. He's got to show them redirecting their their understanding to God's order, which is restored in Christ. See, Paul's not picking on ladies. Paul's not. These are not verses, ladies, that you just go, okay, I'm just going to skip those and move on. I'll get past chapter 3, too, because that talks about dudes. I'm going to get on to chapter 4. That's, that's not what he's doing here. Paul is dealing with a cultural problem in Ephesus. But I want you to notice what he does. He gives us a universal answer. So what many do with this text is they say, there was a cultural problem in Ephesus, and all the instruction Paul gives are cultural answers, meaning these are only for their culture and their time. But I want you to notice something in the text that proves That's not true. Notice verse 8 with me when Paul talks about men praying and he says, in every place. What Paul's saying is, Timothy, in instructions in the church, wherever a church gathers in every place, this should be happening. Then he says in verse 9, when he begins the instruction for women, he says, likewise. When you read likewise, you know, I should look back at the verse before and go, what has he just been telling me? And he says, in every place men should pray, and likewise women, in every place, these things should go on. In other words, these instructions are for every place, in every church, every place the church gathers throughout all of time. These are not exclusions to say, this is for the Ephesian church. That's not what Paul says. 
So Paul gives a universal answer to a cultural problem, and that tells us something. We better pay attention. And his universal answer is not politically correct, nor is it easy to take, especially in the world that we live in, where, where if you will, the truth of a God-given gender or God-given gender roles is on the outs, or in a world like Ephesus that was a bastion for feminine supremacy, The universal answer Paul gives is basically this, and I'm going to summarize it for you. The biblical norm that Christians should affirm is a woman's submission and support to male authority and leadership in the church. The biblical norm that Christians should affirm is a woman's submission and support to male authority and leadership. Now listen, before you jump off a cliff, all right, let's just settle down. I'm going to talk about this and define it, lay it out more clearly. But for now, that's the basic answer, that you can see that in the text. You can see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You can see it in Ephesians chapter 5. You can see it in Colossians chapter 3. In other words, you can see this everywhere in the Bible. But, but the, the, the biblical norm is that Christians should affirm is that a woman's submission and support to male leadership and authority. The church and the family run better. People are happier and are more satisfied when we believe, affirm, and live by a woman's submission and support to male's authority, to a man's authority and leadership. Now let's jump into the next point, which is the difficult ones. Let's dive into the the hard stuff, right? I mean, we're going to talk about the most challenging, controversial questions in this text And next week, we're going to jump into more of the controversial pieces as well, because there's a lot that we need to cover. See, this this means as you look at the text, we're not going to spend a lot of time on verse 8. right? Verse 8, you know, Paul calling men to pray in every place, lifting a holy hands without fighting and quarreling, would make a whole lot of sense when you know that Jews and Greeks were coming to church and been fighting. And Paul says, hey, when you come to church, here's the deal. Stop fighting and pray. Just like we talked about last week. Nor are we going to spend a ton of time on the fact that women should dress modestly. Knowing that there were temple prostitutes roaming the town, knowing that many of these women then came to Christ, and they still dressed like they were in their previous lifestyle and acted like prostitutes, helps us understand why Paul would give this instruction. So the talk of braided hair, you know, I, I can only imagine we started reading about the gold jewelry, and some of you probably started taking off your earrings and tucking them in your purse, and you know... I was, the, the, the talk of the braided hair go, is not a command to stop braiding your hair. If you play volleyball, braid your hair, right? I mean, okay? It, as much as it's a command for women to not dress like women who are selling themselves. Modesty may vary from culture to culture. I mean, if you've been overseas internationally, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But a Christian woman is to adorn herself with good works in every culture. That's a universal issue. Where I want to spend my time today is on verses 11 and 12, which are the verses that are like the powder keg. These are the ones that go off in the church. And these verses have to do with, listen clearly, with authority in the church, leadership in the church, and gender order in the church. And the reason I say that is because of the backdrop of the temple and its influence, Paul is asking a big question. When you come together in the church, do you do the things that they did in the temple? Where the women were leading, there were women prophetesses that spoke at any time, there was disorder and disruption. How do men and women function in the church? Now next week we're going to talk about the gender issues from creation and how Jesus restores things, but right now, that's next week. Right now we want to talk about what role do the genders play in the church. What role do men and women play in the church? Paul is establishing something and he's establishing what does leadership in the church look like under Jesus? We can also say these verses are about authority and submission because when you read the verses, can you put those back up on the screen? Um, you'll notice something. Authority and submission are words used in the text. Now again, the beauty of exegetical preaching is we don't make stuff up. It's in the text. So the text says authority and submission. So that means these verses are about authority and submission. I mean, you didn't have to have a master's degree to figure that one out, right? Way to go, pastor. That was really profound, right? 
Paul is speaking clearly about who leads and who follows. But I want you to notice something else. I say these verses are about authority and submission in the church because of where Paul goes directly after these verses. After these verses, Paul goes to chapter 3, which chapter 3 is the longest part in Paul's writings about leadership in the church of elders and deacons. In other words, in chapter 2, Paul is setting the stage for chapter 3. In chapter 2, Paul is setting the stage for what does it look like to have leaders in the church. So with that understanding that these verses are about authority and submission in the church, then let's take them up and look at them. The first thing you'll notice is in verse 11, where Paul says that women are to learn quietly with all submission. Now, knowing the chaos in their church services I mentioned earlier, it would make sense for Paul to instruct this. In the church in Ephesus, women would loudly disrupt the church services, loudly asking their questions of their husbands or other men in the room, and loudly disagreeing with the teacher, or loudly prophetic, just standing up and prophetically saying stuff that they thought was true. It was chaos. That seems so odd to us because we go, we don't, we don't really have that here, right? That's what they were having here. Again, with the fact that Ephesus was a bastion for feminine supremacy, this would need to be discussed. It would need to be taught. They would not know this. They don't even have a category for it in their minds. This is why Paul says women should learn quietly and in submission. But let's take the word quiet for a minute and talk about it because it's, it's important. Notice with me the word quiet is also used in 2 Timothy chapter, or 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, where Paul said that we are to live peaceful and quiet lives. This word does not mean absolute silence. Instead, it's a quietness of heart. It's a quietness of contentment. It's being at peace and living within the God-given place, God-given gender, God-given role that God created for you. In some places of the world, we'd say, as a young man grows, we'd say, he's beginning to understand who he is as a man. These verses would describe, these verses reveal a woman who's beginning to understand who she is as a woman. And she's comfortable in it. So we have to ask, what type of quietness is Paul talking about? Well, we get a good example of this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, when Peter, talking about the role of a woman, says that she's to have the imperishable qualities of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Now, notice something about those imperishable qualities. It says that which are precious in the sight of God. Meaning, if you want to know what pleases God, ladies, it's, it's being somebody that has an imperishable quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Now, the idea of a quiet spirit is a person who is not entirely silent, nor they don't talk. That's not what it means. It means a settled disposition of one's role, of one's place, and of one's value. A quiet person is neither trying to gain ground for their own benefit, nor are they giving up ground with fake compliance. Like, you know, whatever you're going to, you just do it anyway. I don't care what you're, you're just going to do it. It's not that attitude. Instead, they are humbly holding their seat. So when Paul says for a woman to learn quietly, he's saying that she understands God's created order. She's content in it. And does not do anything to undermine God's order or the authority that God has placed her under. John Piper put it best when he wrote these words. Quietness means not speaking in a way that compromises that authority. Now think about this for a minute. This means that a woman could be opinionated and be quiet. One of the best examples in my life of that is my wife. People who don't know my wife very well thinks that my wife are just quiet and she just kind of doesn't say much and she doesn't give many opinions and she's really, you know, pliable and all those kind of things. And those who know my wife well know that my wife is very strong. She's theologically savvy. She's deep. She's a little bit stubborn at times because she holds her ground and she's very opinionated. And there's times you'll probably notice I catch her eyes during a church service. And if she kind of looks at me kind of funny, I'm changing the subject. (laughs) If I'm the head of the home, she's the neck of the home. (laughs) Yet, if you get around her, she has a settled disposition. 
A woman could be opinionated and yet be quiet. But it also means that a woman could be silent and not be quiet. See, this quietness has more to do with the attitude of the heart than it does with the lips. The heart will rule the lips. So a woman is to learn quietly in all submissiveness. I'm going to add another word, and in support. The second thing you're going to notice in verse 12 is where Paul says women are not to teach or exercise authority over a man. This is perhaps the most charged portion of the text, especially in our world. So we've got to explore this just a tad more to understand what Paul is getting at. First thing we need to realize is, in the Bible, women are encouraged to teach. Titus chapter 2 verse 3 says that women, older women in particular, are to be instructing younger women. One of the beautiful things happening in the life of our church is you'll find older women mentoring and loving on younger women all the time. They do it so well. Paul wrote that to Titus, the pastor, and he said, Titus, make sure this is happening in your church. We notice another place in 2 Timothy 1 and 3 that young pastor Timothy, before he ever became a pastor, was taught the scriptures in an early age by his mom Eunice and his grandmother Lois. Wouldn't you have loved to sit at the feet of those ladies as they gave instruction to this young man about God's word and the wonder of Christ? But what about Acts chapter 18, verse 26, where we're introduced to this lady, and her name is Priscilla. She's alongside her husband, whose name is Aquila, and they taught this man named Apollos the way of God more accurately. Just so you can understand the impact of this moment, most historians will tell you that Apollos was more than likely the best preacher in the first century. One of those gifted teachers of God's word was spoken to by a woman and her husband about the way of God more accurately. So it is obvious from Scripture that women are to teach. And if we're honest with ourselves, and if you're a guy that teaches at all, you'll understand there's a lot of women who do it way better than you. So what Paul is talking about here is is what is... So, so Paul's about teaching something differently. So what is Paul talking about? Well, this is where the idea of the authority in the church is important. Because Paul ties this type of teaching with authority in the church. Notice how he does it. A woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. Paul is talking about forbidding women from teaching in the church when it's part of exercising authority. This is why connecting this section to chapter 3 is so important. Because chapter 3 is about elders leading the church. And elders have two primary roles that they're to do in the church. They're to oversee the church and protect the church. And they're to teach the church sound doctrine. You're going to notice in 1 Timothy 3 verse 2 that an elder must be able to teach. Meaning he's got to be able to protect sound doctrine, teach sound doctrine, refute false doctrine. But you also notice in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 17 where it emphasizes Caring for elders, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Or you'll notice Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where Paul said the elders in Ephesus were to oversee the flock of God that God gave them. And that that false teachers, wolves, would rise up from among them. So on one level, the the teaching in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is connected to the role of an elder. We could put it this way. Paul's basic instruction would be this. I do not permit a woman to teach with the authority of an elder. Now we'll cover more about elders in a couple of weeks when we get there, 1 Timothy 3, but I want you to notice something that's very clear. It's very clear in God's word. We don't have to do any word gymnastics with this. An elder is a gender exclusive role that's reserved for men. You'll see this in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, that an elder must be the husband of one wife. I get it. Our culture would redefine that. That's not, it's a very clear reading in scripture would be this. To lay it out is, he's a one woman kind of man. That's the phrase that the Greek actually uses, revealing that role is reserved for men. And these teaching roles would be seen in other places in the Bible, like Acts chapter 13, verse 1, where you see in Antioch, they had this great list of teachers. Can you imagine being in that church? 
Or in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 that says these, the gift of teaching is from God so that the church would be equipped for every work of ministry. See, these roles, these teaching roles, Paul would say, are reserved for men. Why? They have authority to them. However, it must be stated very clearly that women can, should, and do teach. But their teaching is in supportive, non-authoritative roles using their spirit-empowered gifts. Again, let's utilize Priscilla as a great example of this. Priscilla, a marvelous theologian who could tell a guy like Apollos, one of the most gifted preachers of the day, hey, Apollos, let me show you a more excellent way. And he would hear it, receive it, respond to it, and then go on his way to teach about the baptism found in Christ. Her role was not authoritative. It was supportive. One of the best examples in the history of our church is a lady who passed away last August, Linda Hurd. Linda, Linda was a marvelous theologian, maybe, maybe one of the best theologians I've ever been around. I, I, I was telling the story earlier. I can remember times as we were going through studies, one in particular through the study of Judges, which is my favorite sermon series I probably have ever done in our church. And Linda came to me before church. She knew I was preaching on Jephthah. And she said, I, I can't wait to hear how you handled Jephthah. I said, well, how, how did you handle Jephthah? And we sat down together before church, and Linda gave me all of her reasonings for why she thought certain things about the text. And I said, uh, I'm probably not going to use any of that, but this thing here I'm going to use. Can I use that? And she said, as she always did, this is for your benefit. You use it however you want to use it. I don't need any credit from it. Yet Linda would support, care, non-authoritative. Now there's moments like, when I was not operating as a pastor and I was operating as like her, her fourth son, she was authoritative, right? I mean, right? Moments, David, knock that off. Yes, mother, I will knock that off. But in my role as pastor, my role in understanding her place, always supportive. Now we'll look next in two weeks about elders, but I want to say something about it before we get there. The authority that Paul is talking about, the leadership Paul is talking about, is to be caring, service-oriented, loving, honoring to people, encouraging them, and edifying everyone who might want to serve in God's church. There's no place in Christ's church for leadership that is dictatorial, manipulative, coercive. That is ungodly. There's no room for it. And for anybody to take this text and then we, we use it to shut women up, to put them in the background, to tell them to find, mind their own business and find their place, there's no place in this church for that type of leadership. You don't find that in the Bible. So when you think of this type of leadership, these verses are not a license for squelching women or denying them to use their gifts or denying them opportunity to serve Christ. Instead, these verses are intended to free women up to serve in their God-given role and the capacity that God has asked them to serve. So leadership positions in the church that require authoritative teaching, primarily elders, is reserved for men. You can only imagine for Timothy what this would have stirred up in his church. Friends, you can only imagine what's happening in our world. Right now in the nation of Canada, for you to counsel somebody and tell them, God gave you your uh, your gender, you can be sent for jail for that now. And we think, no, that that could never happen here. (laughs) This type of teaching for some reason in our world, has become dangerous. Yet Paul says, and God says, these type of leadership roles are reserved for men. This is a universal answer to a cultural problem. It is to go on in every church, wherever the church is to meet. Now the question would be, why? Why did God set it up this way? Why why did God do this? And you're going to see the answer in verse 13. We're not given a lot of explanation in verse 13. We're given one explanation. God created Adam first, then Eve. Next week we're going to talk about the continuation of some of this. 
But God created Adam first, then Eve. What Paul does is Paul says, how did God set up the genders? He created Adam first, then Eve. What this does is take the pressure off of us as Christians. Because we've said this before, where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where it doesn't speak, we don't speak. Where churches are getting themselves in trouble is, they're trying to become relatable to the outside world and speaking outside of where God has spoken. God has spoken. Therefore, since God has spoken, we can speak. Where God doesn't speak, we don't speak. So why did God set it up this way? Because he made man first and then woman. He created Adam as the authority in, in, in the, before, in the creation. Gender roles were in operation way before sin came into the world. We'll talk more about this next week, but notice clearly, Adam was created first, then Eve. Eve came from Adam and for Adam, not the other way around. And Eve, and Adam named Eve and all the creatures of creation indicating he had authority and leadership over creation. Now, some have said, well, God gave us the gender roles after sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. But that's not true at all. You see it very clearly. Paul referring to the roles started before the sin ever entered the world. Second, this is God's order. This is God's order. And how God desires the church to be ordered. Sin has distorted the roles and how we function in our society. But... The redemption and restoration in Christ has brought us to a place we can be restored to our God-given roles. So why is it that women are not to teach and exercise authority over men? Because Adam was created first and then Eve. Why are men to take primary leadership in the church? Because Adam was created first and then Eve. Now next week, again, we're going to dive into this looking back to creation, the fall in Christ... We're going to cover hard ground. We're going to get into verse 15 about that childbearing question. What in the world is that about? Right? But right now I want you to notice something. Paul is saying something very clearly. God intends for the order in his church to mirror the order in creation. That's what he restored us for. Now let's finish with three important considerations that I want us to think about as we get this discussion wrapped up. The first one is grace and peace have got to lead this discussion. I want to say this really clearly to us as Christians in particular. All of our discussions with people who disagree with us had better be wrapped up in grace and peace. They better not be wrapped up in criticism, self-righteousness, pride. They better be wrapped up in grace and peace. And here's the reason. How has God handled you? How has God treated you when you were sinning against him? What kind of patience did God bring your direction? How gracious was he toward you bringing you to Christ? How patient was he and how kind was he to not send you straight to the pit of hell when you sinned against him in the first place? And so when you talk to somebody who disagrees with you on these issues, your posture should be gracious. It should also be peaceful because you, you want others to come to peace with God, their Savior, and peace with other people. Love must win the day because Jesus has won our hearts. And we should respectfully model and talk about gender roles in the church and outside of the church. But as we do so, we should let grace and peace lead the discussion. Again, check your social media feeds and find out How gracious have you been with others who disagree with you? The second thing I want you to keep in mind is do not equate role with status or value. Because God has called all of us to different roles, it does not change our value with God as his children. It doesn't. Ladies, you are just as much an heir of the grace of life as a Christian man is. You are filled with wisdom. You have the spirit of God in you. You have unique gifts that God has given you. And we as Christian men want you to utilize all of those things. We would be idiotic to not listen to the wisdom of our women. You you have equal value, but you have a different role. 
Listen, churchgoer, you, you need to realize you're just as much of a recipient of forgiveness of sin as the pastor is. We are equal at the foot of the cross. Our roles may differ, but our value before God does not. All are created in the image of God. All Christians have been given grace, mercy, and peace. We all have equal value with God, even though we have different roles. The last thing is this. God intends every person, male and female, to be involved in his mission just in different roles. Listen, we cannot get into the syndrome that says, I'm a woman, therefore I don't have a place to serve. I'm a churchgoer, and only God, God wants elders doing his work. That, that to, in my opinion, is unbiblical. I don't see it any place in Scripture, and it keeps you from doing kingdom work. I can tell you what the vision of our heart is, what I think the Bible teaches, that every one of you are ambassadors of Christ. Every one of you are in the priesthood of the believer. Every one of you have the gift of the Spirit of God in you. Every one of you have a unique gift Unique interests, unique hobbies. Every one of you have the ability to communicate and live out the gospel. Every one of you can be used by God. Every one of you have the ability, when a friend comes to you at a marriage problem, to say to them, not only will I pray for you, here's what God's word says about this. How can I love you and care for you? Every one of you have that. You do not have to say, wait, stop, hold the train. When ministry gets done, when my pastor shows up. Every one of us are to play a role in the kingdom of God. Every person, male and female, are to be involved in his mission, just with different roles. I think it's helpful for you as we do, just to read John Piper's definitions of authority and submission to hear this from him. I think this is really helpful. Authority refers to the divine calling of spiritual gifted men to take primary responsibility as elders for Christ-like servant leadership and teaching in the church. Submission refers to the divine calling of the rest of the church, both men and women, to honor and affirm the leadership of the elders, and look at this, and to be equipped by the elders for the hundreds and hundreds of various ministries available to men and women in the service of Christ. Leave that up. We cannot miss Hundreds and hundreds of various ministries for the service of Christ. Friends, you you are to be ministers of the gospel right where you are. God wants all of us involved in this ministry. He wants all of us mobilized in the service of his gospel. So don't don't mistake gender roles or different roles as you are less than useful. No, 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 no. It's just a different role. My my role is to equip you to go do works of ministry, which we gladly let you go do. That's just my role. That doesn't mean my role is more valuable. It's a different role. No different than my third baseman on Tuesday night better have a different role than my shortstop. Right? Different role. Equal value. Different role. Let me just close with this statement. I want something. I want you to notice something that you cannot miss going on in this church. You will notice in this church you have strong men, but you have incredibly strong women. It's a mark of God's kindness to us. We have women who aren't afraid to share their opinions. I love it. I was in an elder meeting one night. We were talking over some particular issues with the property. Uh, One of the brothers mentioned that there was a lady in our church that had some expertise in an area and said, you know what, she's got some concerns and some questions. Right there from my computer, I'd text her. Hey, I got some questions. Guys, we're talking about this in elder me. I would love your input. What are your thoughts? And she gave us me a list of things. I said, okay, here's what she's thinking. Threw those out to the elders. Here's her concerns. You come to a staff meeting on a Tuesday, second Tuesday, fourth Tuesday, you're going to see around the table a group of men and a group of ladies. And I believe our elder, our, our women staff members will tell you we are constantly asking for input we want, their, we want their investment. We want their influence. We want to hear what they have to say. And they help shape what we do here. Role is supportive. They know we have to make decisions, but it's supportive. You're going to find in this church mentally tough women who have gone through incredibly hard things. As John Piper would say, they have a steel rod of faith in their back. That's the kind of women we have here. They are theologically deep women 
You know what that reveals? It reveals not just strong women. It reveals strong men. Men who value and love strong women. People have heard me preach on this before and they've said to me, Dave, it just seems that you're such a strong man that you just want women following you everywhere. They don't know my women. They don't know my women. If you think that's me, go ask any one of them. Because I stood last night watching my daughters come down with their friends at a wedding and I could not be more proud of the strength of my women. We want strong women. We want to value strong women to operate in their God-given role and their God-given gender. And CLF, listen, that's a mark of who we are. But let's never take it for granted. Pride can always enter in. You have a sinful pastor. It can always enter in. So let's honor these God-given genders, honor their God-given roles, and rejoice as God does his work. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we need you through this. I am so grateful for the work you're doing in our church. I love seeing and hearing about the strong women in our church, how they serve Christ and how they care for Jesus. I thank you for the strong marriages in our church where where there is complementary relationships being happening and both are responding in strength. I thank you for the strong singles in our church where in their their womanhood and their manhood, they are living as brothers and sisters in Christ and encouraging others to walk with Jesus. God, we are freshly aware that this is a gift of your grace. But Father, I pray that you help us do this even better. Help us to abound more and more in the work of grace for the glory of Christ, the advancement of your gospel, and for the good of your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.